Morning. How's everybody doing? Great. I'm glad to hear that. Can I, can I just make a comment about preaching before I preach? Uh, I don't, I don't, it's hard when you're, when you do this. Uh, I don't want to be critical, but I want to point something out. Uh, as I listen to preaching on the radio, podcasts, other things, the thing that I find often is that, and, and it seems to be what people want, is just very practical messages. Tell me the five ways I can submit to the governmental authority. You know, tell me these, give me these lists of things that I can do and I can check off. And what I find lacking often, not always, is the power to do those things. The admission that we can't do those things on our own. And that comes uh, from a firm, I think, theological, foundational understanding of Scripture. And sometimes it's not as practical as we would like it to be, at least on its face. I think it's very practical when we understand it. And so I'm I'm saying that because today is going to be less than practical as far as Here's the checklist of things uh, you're going to do. We're going to get some truths here, and they're uh, maybe some deep truths, I think, uh, about Christ. And I think they provide us with the foundation we need to live that practical life. The Bible has both, just so, so we know. Remember, if you were with us for Romans, you saw 11 chapters of theological tr- glorious truths about Christ and God and who we are. And then there was four, and it was very practical stuff. And I think that's probably a good ratio. <laughs> you know, that, I don't, what's, what's the one, three to one? Maybe that's it, I don't know. So today we're going to, I mean, we're in the midst of a section that's very practical, uh, a submission, but uh, Peter in that throws in some deep theological stuff. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with, uh, to First Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 21 to 25. If you remember in these verses, Peter's giving crucial, practical instructions to his readers. Instructions to those that he's referred to in the letter thus far as elect, as beloved, as sojourning exiles. They and we were part of that. Those that have have given our lives, have trusted in Christ. We're chosen and loved by God but we're still living in this world. This world is where we dwell, where we sojourn, but it's not our home. And Peter is instructing us in how to live in this sin-laden world for the glory of God. How to live in obedience to God. How to live in righteousness for God's glory. Now last week we looked at verses 18 to 23. In those verses, Peter instructs servants to submit to their masters. And he makes it clear that servants are to submit even when their master, uh, a person in authority over them, so this employee-employer relationship, we talked about that in our world, and, and other things, even when that person in authority over you is unjust or crooked. Now, I need to correct something I said last week. If you remember last week, I needed to correct something I said the week before, so this is becoming a habit for me. If you remember, the Greek word for unjust is skolios, 
where we get our word scoliosis, a curvature of the spine, disease. What I said was, uh, and I need to correct, is that my wife, her mother, and grandmother have had or had scoliosis. They don't. They haven't. Uh, they, they have, so I'm doing this, uh, they have and are starting to have, my wife, been to the doctor and she needs to take calcium. I had to go get her calcium today for her. Uh, osteoporosis, which is different from scoliosis. So, okay, I, don't want, I, I just wanted to make that clear with everybody. With that correction, we can continue reviewing Peter's command to submit to unjust, to crooked uh, masters. He acknowledges that submitting to unjust masters means facing unjust suffering. So he then addresses the very real and practical issue of unjust suffering. How are we, for the glory of God, to respond when we suffer unjustly? And Peter's answer is to... uh, endure it, to bear up under it. In verses 18 and 19, we read, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He says that it's a gracious thing when you endure unjust suffering with God in mind. When we, for the Lord's sake, for the glory of God, endure unjust suffering, that crooked uh, manager, that crooked boss, it's a gracious thing. It's a good thing. It's pleasing to God. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And, you know, if you want more on that and you weren't here last week, that's what we talked about last week, that God is pleased when we endure suffering for His sake. Then to reinforce this difficult concept, this difficult practical application, and to help us respond correctly to unjust suffering, Peter gives an example, a model to follow. That's what we find in our passage for today, verses 21 through 25. Let me read it for us. For to this you have been called, because Christ, and that is for to this unjust suffering, you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now last week we did cover, look at, maybe briefly, verses 21 through 23, the first part of this. And our focus was on Christ as our model of unjust suffering. That's the context that Peter's writing in. But as Peter puts Christ forth as an example to us, he also gives us uh, several glorious theological truths about what Christ's suffering accomplishes for us. These are God-glorifying, Christ-glorifying truths. Uh, Truths that when taken in, when understood, when believed, should lead us to fall deeper in love 
with the Lord. Truths that should cause us to live more purposefully and powerfully for the glory of God. So in the midst of telling us how to live for God's glory, Peter gives us the glorious truths of what Christ has done for us. And in so doing, he gives us motivation and power for living for the glory of God. So our focus today, as we look at these verses, some for the second time, will be to grow in our understanding and our response to what Christ's suffering and death has accomplished for us. Now let me first introduce uh, the big picture of these verses, 21-25. If you examine, if you examine them, and we will, you'll find three or four, I'll explain that, of Christ's uh, suffering, uh, three or four results, what results from Christ's suffering and death. I say three or four because two of them sort of go together, but I've separated them, so we have four points in the message today. Two, numbers two and three are sort of together. But no, but no matter how you look at these points, all result, all point to the fact that God's purpose for us, His beloved, His elect, is that we live differently. Specifically, Peter tells us that Christ suffered and died for us so that we might live like Christ. God's purpose for us is that we, for His glory and for our good, might become more like Christ. And in these verses, we not only see God's purpose for us, we see God's firm commitment to fulfill this purpose in our lives. It's not about us doing it. It's about what God is doing in our lives. God is committed to His elect, beloved, sojourning exiles. He's committed to us becoming more like His Son. And that commitment is clearly seen in the lengths to which He goes to make it happen. Specifically, God, uh, co- God's commitment to His people being like Jesus is seen in the suffering and death of Jesus. So keeping that introduction in mind, let's now look at the three, four times Peter tells us God's purpose for us. Let's examine how each occurrence shows God's commitment to make His purpose happen through the suffering and death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see is the fact that Christ suffered... And died. The point, it was getting too long, but, and he talks more about suffering here, but along with the suffering, the suffering ended in his death. So all of this includes Christ's suffering and death, so you can follow him. Here it is, stated very clearly God's purpose for us is that we be like Jesus. Verse 21, we read, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Last week, we focused on the fact that we've been called to endure unjust suffering because Christ endured unjust suffering suffering for us. He's our model. He's our inspiration. He's our motivation to endure unjust suffering. We look to Christ who was perfect, as Peter writes in verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. Christ is the greatest example of one who endured unjust suffering because he was perfect, and yet he still suffered. He did everything right, and yet he still suffered. He's the example of one who, instead of lashing out in return, which may have been justified, he trusted his Father who judges justly. And again, we're to follow in his steps. We're to live like Christ by enduring unjust suffering. But Christ isn't the only, Christ isn't the only example of this. He's not the only example of endurance of unjust suffering. He's certainly the greatest But throughout Scripture and and even history, men and women have endured unjust suffering. One example from Scripture would be Joseph. Joseph endured being unjustly sold into slavery by his brothers and then being unjustly imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. And yet Joseph did not revile or threaten his brothers or those who had imprisoned him. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, said, God, you're in this. I'm going to keep trusting in you, the one who judges justly. Years later, after you know, Joseph was lifted up and became second only to the Pharaoh in Egypt, he says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me when you sold me into slavery, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So along with Christ... Joseph is another clear example, an inspiration even, a motivation for us to endure unjust suffering. But I want us to consider the fact that when it comes to Christ, there's another uh, deeper layer, if you will, to what Peter's saying. C.S. Lewis uh, put it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is the, the deep magic from the dawn of time, from before the dawn of time. This is what we're talking about. Again, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. Christ suffered and died for you, that you might follow in His steps. Certainly that means that you might follow in His steps of enduring unjust suffering, but I think there's more. And Peter will make that more even clearer when we get to verse 24. But even here in verse 21, I want us to understand that we are not just to follow in Christ's steps with regards to enduring unjust suffering. I think we know this. We're to follow in His steps in all ways, in all things, right? How many of you ever wore one of those uh, WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do bracelets that were popular in the 1990s? You guys wear one of those? I don't know if I did. I'm, the 90s are a blur. <laughs> now, you might think that this concept of WWJD, what would Jesus do, originated in the 90s. And you'd be kind of correct, but it wasn't the 1990s, it was the 1890s. Has anyone ever read the book, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? It ranks as one of the best, I recommend it, it ranks as one of the best-selling books of all time, maybe third or fourth next to the Bible, which is first, and we're going to talk about number two in a minute. 
It was written by Charles Sheldon and first published in 1896. It's a fictional novel about a pastor who challenges his congregation to, do, to not do anything for a whole year without first asking, what would Jesus do? It goes on to focus on the transformation, really, that takes place in the lives of those who take up this challenge. Now, I mention this book and the, the WWJD bracelet because in their day, and even in today, this idea uh, seems pretty radical. It's radical Christianity, right? That, that people, Christians, can't really practically, in this sinful world, follow in the steps of Christ. We can't love like Jesus loved. We can't sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed. We can't obey God like Jesus obeyed God. It's a radical, impractical concept to do nothing without first asking, what would Jesus do? Well, it may be radical, and it may be impractical from the world's perspective. It may not lead to what the world is pushing you towards, what, 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 it, what, what the world thinks you should have, health and wealth and power and fame and security and comfort. In fact... Following in Jesus' steps may lead, probably will lead, to unjust suffering. And yet, that's what God calls us to. That is His purpose for us, that we, not radical Christians, but normal Christians, follow in Jesus' steps. Now, when we say something is radical, we often mean it's uh, really hard to do, right? It's radical, it's difficult to be like Christ, and that is true. In fact, God knows that that we on our own cannot do it. So how do we do that? How do we follow in Jesus' steps? Is it a matter of looking at His example uh, to give us inspiration and motivation? I mean, it certainly does, but it's more than that. Because unlike Joseph and others throughout history, who can be great examples in a lot of ways, Christ, through His suffering for us, gives us something more than inspiration. By His suffering and death, He gives us the power to accomplish God's purpose of being uh, of following in His steps. Christ didn't just suffer and die to give us an example. He suffered for us. That is, He suffered in our place. He suffered on our behalf that we might be empowered to follow in His steps. Peter's already written something kind of like that in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Jesus suffered and died shedding His precious blood. Why? Not just that we might be saved from the penalty of our sin and given eternal life, although that is true, but also so we might be ransomed from our feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Jesus' suffering and death not only provides the forgiveness for our sins, but it provides the power to overcome our sins and to follow in His steps. And so in His suffering for us, Christ showed His commitment and God the Father's commitment to bringing their purpose for us to pass. 
Something supernatural happened in the death of Christ for us that guarantees its success in enabling us to follow in His steps. The purpose is that we become like Christ. And the power to do that comes not from us, from ourselves, from our own ability, but it comes from Christ's substitutionary death for us. He suffered and died for us to make us like Him. So first, Christ suffered so that we could follow Him. And we see this even more clearly in, verses, in verse 24. Here Peter expands not only on what Christ's suffering accomplishes, but he also tells us what it means to follow in His steps. What does that look like in summary? And it means two things. They go together, and both are found in verse 24. But as I said earlier, I've broken them up into two separate parts for us to examine. So first, we see that Christ suffered so that we can die to sin. The first part, uh, of, the, uh, the first part of following in Christ's steps is our death to sin. He that knew no sin, Christ... Therefore, we're following in His steps. We are to die to sin. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might, that we are enabled to die to sin and live to righteousness. Again, God's purpose for us and God's commitment to that purpose is backed up by the suffering and death of Jesus for us. God's purpose for us is stated like this, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And God's commitment to make that happen is stated like this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. This is just like what we saw in verse 21, only more explicit. Peter says very clearly that, we, that he meant, what he meant in verse 21 by uh, Christ suffered for you. He meant Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree, on the cross. Christ's suffering was the, the humiliation, the agony of being nailed to the cross and dying there. And His suffering for us was His bearing our sins. Our sins came upon Him. It was a substitution he bore our sins in His death instead of us having to bear them in our death. Remember last week, I said that uh, in these verses, 21 through 25, Peter is quoting and alluding to the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Well, what Peter says in verse 24 is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. 
the Old Testament Scriptures. That's what Peter's spelling out here in in the language uh, of Isaiah. Christ bore our sins in His body on the cross. That is, He died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, specifically Isaiah 53.6. And this is tremendously good news uh, if you are, were a sinner. Christ bore your sins. Christ bore our sins. He bore my sin and your sin. He bore all the uh, sins of His people. He took the hell-demanding burden of sins off our shoulders and put, it on his, put them on His own. This removal of our sin uh, is, is illustrated in another best-selling book. I think, last time I checked, number two in history, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Throughout the beginning of the book, the main character, Christian, allegory, it's an allegory, carries upon his back a heavy burden. But upon reaching the cross, the straps which bind his burden to him are broken and they roll away into the the Christ tomb, the sepulcher. Here Bunyan represents the fact that, that, that when we come to faith in Christ, when we come to the cross, when we accept Christ's death for our sin in His place, that is in place of our own death for our own sin, the burden of our sin is removed because on the cross, Christ took our sins upon Himself. They were laid upon Him. He bore them for us. And while the consequences of our sins can continue and can be unbelievably painful in this world, the hope and joy we have is that Christ bore our sins in His body on the cross. Shortly after uh, Christian's uh, sin, his burden was lifted, he sang a song of deliverance. A song that embodies the joy and hope we have in the one who bore our sins. I won't sing it. You know, people keep suggesting that I might lead worship at some point. Well, they're crazy because that's not going to happen. I will, uh, if we for some reason can't have worship, I'll just preach longer. So that will be my worship leading. But Christian uh, sings, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place this is, is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Blessed be Jesus Christ who suffered and died for me. Do you have that kind of hope, that kind of joy in the fact that your sins were removed from you and placed on Christ. We should, because the implications are enormous, epic. It means that if we will, we can leave our sinful past and even our our sinful present with God. We can say, I trust you, Jesus, that all my sins, all the ones that are public and all the ones that are private, All of them have been lifted. They've been born. They've been carried. uh, They've been suffered for. 
and therefore removed from me. I bear them no more. I do not carry their guilt into the future with me. Let that sink in for a minute. That Christ bore your sins. Your past, your present, even your future sins. He bore your sins. He took them on Himself. You don't have to carry your sins or be burdened by them. You do not have to wake up with guilt or go to bed with guilt. You can bank your hope on the commitment of God in Christ Jesus because Christ bore your sins in His body on the tree. And the purpose of that, that's all good news, that's all awesome, but the purpose of that Peter says, is that you might both die to your sins and live to righteousness. Now, before we get to living to righteousness, let me ask a question. What does it mean to die to sin? Well, when you die to something, uh, you're dead to it. You depart from it. It is no longer part of who you are. It no longer has power in your life, and you no longer participate in it. So how does that happen? Well, certainly, it's a process and a work of the indwelling Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit convicts us of our sin, and He empowers us to overcome our sin. In fact, Peter begins his letter in verse 2 of chapter 1 by telling us that the Spirit is involved, he's like in charge of, I don't know, in our sanctification. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies. Sanctification, sanctified, being set apart. He sets us apart from our sin. He sets us apart from this sinful world. We die to sin. And He sets us apart to God and His purposes. We live to righteousness. We Death to sin and life to righteousness is a, is, a, is a great little summary of sanctification. So the Spirit is clearly working in our death to sin, But how does he accomplish this work? What what means does he use? Again, uh, it's not a magic trick. It's It's not a little just, you know, he doesn't just change our brain. But I think, I mean, he does change our brain. Let me just stop. He does. But he doesn't just do it like with a snap of his fingers. He does it with a work. He does it by means. He does something so that, I believe, we're involved in the process. That we grow in the process. And I think it works like this. When the Word of God, the Gospel, breaks into our hearts, our minds, by the power of God's Spirit, we're not going to understand it. We're not going to get it without the Spirit in the first place. So, all credit to Him there. But when we get the Gospel, we're born again. As Peter writes in, first, in chapter 1, verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, abiding Word of God. So the Word of God comes, the Gospel, and, and you receive it, you believe it by the power of the Spirit, and you're born again. So when we are born again through the living, abiding Word of God, we become, as Paul puts it to the Corinthians, uh, new creatures in Christ, Right? Uh, We receive the Spirit of God. He becomes our down payment, as Paul says in Ephesians. And the Spirit of truth opens our eyes 
to reality. This is what it's like. This is, this is the real world. You were blind before, and now you can see. So he opens our minds to reality for the first time. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians like this, but when one turns to the Lord, that's the born again, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit is involved here. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, the work of the Spirit. When we turn to the Lord, when we're born again, the veil is supernaturally removed by God's Spirit. That thing that's blocking us, we can't see the truth. And by the power of the Spirit, we can now behold uh, the glory of the Lord. We can see the Lord. I mean, not fully, but we can see the Lord through His Word. And by seeing His glory, we are being transformed into the same image. That image is the image of Christ. So with unveiled faces, we can now see the glory of God's love for us. That He loved us so much, He took the life of His one and only Son. He laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. And when we see that, and when we believe that, we're transformed. We die to the lie of sin. We die to the power of sin's deceit which tries to persuade us that a better future, a better life can be had through sin than through righteousness. So what causes our death to sin is seeing the glory of God, the Son, dying for us on the cross. Seeing and being convinced in the depth of our heart that God is committed to us, that we are His beloved and He loved us enough to send His Son into the world to suffer and die in our place. We were, we were, we were you know, maybe you still are. I don't know your heart. I don't know if you've turned to the Lord, if you've been born again. But we were alive to sin. We were believing in sin. We believed in the power of sin. And, and we were following sin until the glorious cross unleashed unleashed on us, us the conquering love of God. And now the love of God constrains us. It convicts us to see when we're straying, when we're erring. We have these, this love of God is the, 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 the boundary, I don't know. When we, to our own detriment, are wandering into this path of sin. So when the Spirit points us to the glory of the cross... He's empowering us to both die to sin and to awaken to the beauty of righteousness, the righteousness of God who is committed to our righteousness. And that brings us to the second part of what it means that Christ suffered so that we can follow in His steps. First, it means we die to sin, and second, it means Christ suffered so we can live righteously, live to righteousness. Verse 24 Again, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. 
Notice again that, that Christ's substitutionary death, His bearing of our sins, is given as the means that God uses to make us righteous like His Son. To die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, what does it mean to live to righteousness? Well, it means, it means we follow in the steps of Christ. Being like Christ. Doing what Christ would do. Loving like Christ would. Giving like Christ would. Sacrificing like Christ would. Obeying like Christ would. To do what Jesus would do. Really. That's it. And as I said earlier, to many that seems radical and even impractical. And I think it seems that way, uh, unfortunately, because oftentimes uh, that's not who we want to be. That's not what we want to do. We don't want to die to our sin. We like keeping it around. We don't want it to depart. We don't want to live to righteousness. And so we call it radical and impractical. But it's not. It's God's will for you and for me, His beloved. And God went so far as to see His beloved Son suffer and die so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the question for each of us today is this. Do you want to die to sin and live to righteousness? Seriously. Think about it. We've just seen the purpose for the suffering and death of Jesus. That is, because He bore our sins on the cross, we can now follow in His steps. We can now die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, of course, we can also be saved and forgiven and spend eternity with God, but that's not what He's focusing on here. He's focusing on our death to sin and our living in righteousness right now. Now, does that feel like good news to you? Or does it feel like uh, the good news of the cross of being given, uh, is given with the one hand and taken away with the other? Does it feel like the good news that the message of the cross on the one hand is forgiveness and removal of the penalty of sin and eternal life, but on the other hand it's laying on this radical, impractical burden? On the one hand, the suffering and death of Jesus for us And bearing our sins away, that feels freeing and joyful and hopeful. But on the other hand, the suffering and death of Jesus is designed by God to create people who follow in Jesus' steps, who die to sin and live to righteousness. And there are many people who feel that the first work of the cross is joyful and it's good news, and that's all they talk about, really. That's the good news. Get them saved. Get them to pray the prayer. But the second, it's kind of burdensome. It's difficult to understand. It's impractical. It's radical. We'll leave that for another day. For them, the grace of the cross is only the forgiveness of sins, uh, justification, and the gift of eternal life. And when they hear that the grace of the cross is not just justification but it's also sanctification, being set apart from the power of sin, it doesn't feel as good. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for this, ranging from rebellion in in your heart to theological misunderstanding. I don't have time to to 
figure all that out, what I want to do is simply stress that the purpose of the cross is not only to free us from the penalty of our sins, which every evangelical Christian knows, but to free us from the enslaving power of sin, which way too many people don't know. And it's not one or the other. I'm going to focus here, leave you to that. It's both and. And that this glorious truth does not... uh, we, We need to understand... That this glorious truth, that we not only uh, that Christ not only bears the penalty for our sins, but He empowers us to overcome sin, that should not decrease the good news, but increase it. Would it really uh, be good news if the Bible taught that the death of Christ took away the penalty of sin, but left you enslaved to its power? If that sounds like good news to you, if it would be good news that you could go on living the way the world does, if you could go on living the way your forefathers did, as Peter put it in chapter 1, only without punishment, then what that shows is that you love sin and not God. But if you long to be set free, not only from the penalty, but also the enslaving power then these verses don't decrease the good news, they increase it. This is how you can be set free. What verse 24 is saying, that when Christ bore our sins in His body on the cross, He secured not only the removal of our penalty, but also the release, our release from bondage. Christ bore our sins in His body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the design. That's the purpose and the commitment of God in the cross. That's what He commits Himself to in the new covenant. Now, you might still be thinking, uh, that this is uh, still radical and impractical. Maybe it's just Maybe it's just an offer, a nice goal to put out there instead of something we can actually do. Maybe the cross really doesn't secure and guarantee anything for us, but only offers something to us, something we can take it or leave it, right? Well, the fourth and final statement of the purpose of Christ's suffering in this text makes that very unlikely. Uh, Christ suffered, this is the fourth point, so we can return to God. Verse 24, uh, quoting Isaiah 53, 5, He bore our sins on the tree, in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. By His wounds we have been healed. It does not say, by His wounds healing is offered, or by His wounds healing is possible. It says, by his wounds you have been healed. Past tense, done deal, healed. So the cross is efficacious. I used that word once when my dad was here. My my parents are in Texas, so they're having a good old time, y'all. But uh, my dad came up to me, why do you say big words like that? Why don't you just say what they mean? So I'll say what it means. It achieves, it's efficacious, it achieves what God designs it to achieve. It does what it's supposed to do. 
The cross does not merely create a new radical possibility, it creates a new people. Now when Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed, he's not thinking here mainly of physical healing of cancer or COVID or arthritis or scoliosis or whatever. Osteoporosis. Keep those separate. Now one day... The cross will accomplish that in our lives, whether it be in this age or in the age to come. But that is not Peter's thinking at all here. We know that because of what he writes in verse 25. He explains in verse 25 what he has in mind by healing that the suffering and death, the wounds of Christ can accomplish. What are they accomplishing? Namely, it's a spiritual healing that sheds tremendously important light on what we've seen so far. Verse 25, for you were straying, by, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep. You were sick. You were out there. Uh, you were those, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray that Isaiah talks about. We've turned each one to his own way. That was us, straying like sheep. But, but have now, because you turned to the cross, because you trusted in Christ, have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the healing Peter has in mind. The return, and this is better healing than cancer and COVID and arthritis and all that stuff. This is the lasting eternal healing. The return of a straying, perishing sheep to their guide and provider and keeper, their shepherd, their overseer. By the power of the cross, through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, we who were just like wandering sheep, can now return to relationship with God. We can be reconciled to God, to the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. So why did Christ suffer and die for you and me? Christ suffered so you can follow in His steps, that you might die to sin and live to righteousness, and that you might return to God. That's in there as well. Christ's suffering and death enables Him uh, to, be, uh, to, to bring straying sheep home to the green pastures of the Good Shepherd. Now I ask, is that good news? I have four P's for you here in this long sentence that maybe will help. Is it good news that the purpose of the cross, P1, is not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin and enable us to enter in the presence of God. The purpose of the cross is to save us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and enable us to enter into the presence of God. That is good news, my friends. And I hope you see that Peter wants you to feel this good news by the way he, he, he puts it in verse 25. The suffering and death of Christ brings you uh, to a good shepherd, not to a slave master. A shepherd that guides and leads us to follow in the steps of Christ. A shepherd that uses his rod and staff to oversee our souls, to protect us from sin and, and push us into righteousness. It is this great shepherd uh, that the suffering and death of Christ causes us, enables us, empowers us to return to. And the shepherd provides for us, he protects us, and he relentlessly pursues us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. 
and both his commitment to do this and the power to accomplish this in our lives comes through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. It's signed in the blood of Christ. It's the new covenant sealed with the blood of Christ. So in conclusion, I would say, practically, as you live as a sojourner, as an elect exile in this world, a world filled with distractions and temptation and sin, remember, uh, don't forget, remember that the veil's been removed. You can see. You can see clearly now. I'll sing that song. You can see clearly. I'm sorry. Keep your eyes, because you can see now. Keep your eyes focused on the cross. Keep your face pointed toward, toward Christ's suffering and death for you. And allow the glorious truth of God's commitment to you, His beloved, to empower you to follow in Christ's steps to die to sin and to live to righteousness. That all of your wounds might be healed as you return to the great shepherd and experience his powerful presence, provision, and protection in your life. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, I pray. I thank you that you've removed the veil, that by the power of your Spirit, you've made it possible that we see your glory. And that glory is seen no place more clear than on the cross when you laid upon your beloved Son the iniquity of us all. Father, I pray that that image would be uh, burnt into our eyes, burnt into our brains, that Christ suffered that we might follow in His steps. Lord, I pray that we would understand that and I would pray that we, that would empower us to die to sin and to live to righteousness that we would trust you and your spirit to continue that work in our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you're dismissed. And, and uh, next week, we're back to the practical. Uh, wives, you might want to read ahead. No skipping. No skipping, wives. So, God bless you as you're dismissed.